0: Welcome to The Drabblecast, episode 277. The Drabblecast is a weekly audio fiction magazine that brings strange stories by strange authors to strange listeners, such as yourself. I'm your host, Norm Sherman. So, the results are in. The winners of the 2012 Drabblecast People's Choice Awards, as voted by you weirdos at home. We're going to hold off till after this week's story to announce them, though. You know, suspense and all. This week's story looks at worldviews and our fascination with the other. What separates one kind of life from another, and why we're so attracted to that difference. We don't know the first thing about what life might look like in the Horsehead Nebula, or whatever distant star clusters aliens might hail from, if they exist at all. The dominant life form on their planet could be a smoking, purple fart cloud for all we know. We just can't fathom how different the difference might be. And so, like any person we haven't met, we almost can't help but filter everything we imagine about them through our own paradigms, projecting our own intentions on their behavior, calling ourselves objective. Ever notice that the majority of aliens you see coming through our culture in TV or movies still pretty much look humanoid? Vulcans from Star Trek have pointy ears and bowl cuts. The Asari from the Mass Effect series are basically like blue strippers with cornrows Luke Skywalker and Han Solo were technically aliens that looked exactly like two white Earth men from the 1970s. And even Ridley Scott's alien, as insectile as it tried to be, could still be played by a white Earth man from the 1970s underneath. What if aliens actually turned out to be basically just white dudes from the 1970s? Wouldn't that suck? Okay, maybe not that bad, but it's no smoking purple fart cloud we bring you The Universe of Things by Gwyneth Jones. Miss Jones is the author of more than 20 young adult novels, mostly all under the name Anne Halam, and several highly regarded SF novels for adults. She's won two World Fantasy Awards, the Arthur C. Clarke Award, the British Science Fiction Association Short Story Award, the Philip K. Dick Award, and shared the first Tiptree Award in 1992 with Eleanor Arneson. She lives in Brighton, UK with her husband and a son, a Tonkinese cat called Ginger. The story is read to you by ever-befuddling British radio host, writer, and podcaster, Frank Key. You should be listening to his show by now, Hooting Yard on the air, if you aren't already, as much as we talk it up on the show here. That's at HootingYard.com. It will confound the love out of you. So without further ado, we bring you The Universe of Things by Gwyneth Jones.
1: The alien parked its car across the street from the shop and came and sat down in the waiting room. The mechanic must have seen this happen peripherally. But he was busy settling the bill with a middle-aged woman with curly grey hair and substantial attractive clothes to whom he'd taken an irrational dislike. Those who deal with Joe Punter day in and day out, especially Joe car-owning Punter, are prone to such allergies. He saw her start of concealed surprise, looked up, and there was the alien. The other customers on the row of seats were pretending in their English way that nothing special had happened. He finished dealing with the woman. Other cars and customers left. The alien's turn came. The mechanic went out in the road and hand-waved it into the bay with fatherly care, then sent it back to wait while he looked the red car over. He entered the car's make and model in the terminal and began to check the diagnostics. The mechanic worked this franchise alone, with the robotics and the electronic presence of cashier, manager, head office. He was able to read, print, even to write. It was a necessity of his trade. To be wired up routinely among all this free-running machinery was against health and safety regulations. He used a hear-and-do wire only for the exotics, where the instructions came packaged with the part and tried to conceal this from his customers. The mystique of craftsmanship was important to him. Consequently, it took him some little time to examine the tired little runabout. He called in the alien and explained what had to be done using a lot of gesture. The convention was that if you couldn't stomach calling another sentient being it, they were all called she. The mechanic eyed the alien covertly as he made his exposition. The soft, noseless profile, drooping shoulders, the torso thickened by layers of strange undergarments beneath its drab overalls, gawky, backwards-jointed legs... It was about as female-looking as the dugongs sailors used to miscall mermaids. The confusion, he considered, was an insult to both parties, but it was nonsense to expect the denizen of another star system to be humanly attractive. He wasn't affronted or frightened, as some people might have been, to see one running around loose, out of the enclave, No doubt the alien was going to tip generously, but it wasn't avarice that made him willing to linger. He was simply genuinely pleased to have one of them in his shop. I just want you to scrub the converter. He wasn't surprised that it could speak English. He'd only imagined it would not trouble itself to do so. You know, it's going to be cheaper in the long run to replace the whole exhaust system. You've been using a high methanol percentage. There's a lot of corrosion here. The alien looked at the ground. Come away. He followed it out into the waiting room, where it folded down like a big dog on one of the seats, looking miserable, twisting its puckered chicken skin hands against its chest. I'm going to sell it, the alien explained. I want you to do the minimum that's legally necessary. He realised that the alien did not believe that its car could understand English, but nor did it believe that such understanding was impossible. It believed that if you have to say something unpleasant about some one thing, you remove yourself from the immediate vicinity of the victim. The rules of etiquette were immovable, matter-of-fact and binding. The car's level of comprehension was a separate matter, a subject for abstruse philosophy. It was not unusual for the mechanic to be familiar with alien psychology. Alien nature was the stuff of daytime television. He could have drowned in the subject if he had enough idle time between customers. "'What's legally necessary?' the mechanic repeated. He was disappointed, practically and emotionally, by his customers' poverty, but mollified by its bizarre sensitivity. It, or she, nodded glumly. They nodded. Their gestures were very human, but culturally diverse. For no, they would jerk the chin, not shake the head. It was as if they'd borrowed a little deliberately from every human race, and maybe that was exactly so. Their journey into human space had been through such a saturation of human emissions no one knew how much of alien behaviour on Earth was natural and how much a carefully devised presentation. Shall I wait or shall I come back? Throughout this exchange, the other customers had remained painfully fixed in bored or casual poses. The mechanic was delighted by their intent covert attention he did not want it to stay though if it stayed in here it might strike up a conversation become the temporary property of one of these mere punters you'd better go he told it feigning regret i have another job that i can't put on auto come back in about an hour when it had left regret became real He went out into the dusty street and stared up and down. It was October. The fronds of the banana tree that grew over the wall of an unkempt yard next door were acid green under a lowering sky that had been promising rain for days. Far inland, the vague conurbations stretched up the flanks of the Pennines the hills swimming there out of sight like drowned monuments, drowned in time and lost forever like the great city. There was no sign of the alien. He went into the shop, checked the progress of various operations and quietly, avoiding camera eyes, sneaked through the door at the back and upstairs to his living quarters. His wife was at work their two children seven and two years old were with her in the workplace schoolroom and crash he stood in the living room and studied a row of books disks journals on a shelf of the library unit dealing with the alien what do they think of us the farcomers through alien eyes have they been here before xenobiology towards the dawn of science. The mechanic and his family were no more than averagely interested in the alien visitors. The books had been bought, not read. The mechanic did not feel, on the whole, that the human race was overreacting. He and his wife had voted in favour in the European referendum on the global change of era, which was now on its way to becoming law. This year, this present year, would be forever year 3, 3 AC, probably if the English-speaking lobby had its way, after contact. It was official. This was the greatest thing that had happened to the human race since the dim and distant coming of Christ. And the aliens, unlike Christ, were here. They were in print, on the screen. They were indubitably real. Everything on the shelves had been entered in their library. The mechanic's wife was meticulous over this chore. His fingers hovered over the keypad, but the mysterious inertia of human adulthood defeated him. Only the seven-year-old actually used the database. He took a book down and another, leaved pages, read a paragraph or two. He didn't know what he was looking for. Surrounded by hard things that did not speak or look at him, he tried to imagine how it felt to be the alien. He had known sentimental drivers, cars with names, cars referred to as she, cars abused for bad behaviour. He had caught himself, he dredged up fragments of memory, occasionally giving a glossy flank of robot casing an affectionate pat as he put it aside. Good boy. Good dog. But the aliens did not know about animals. They had tools that crept, slithered, flew. But they had made these things. They had no notion of a separate creation, life that was not their own. It might be that conditions on the home planet were different, but the evidence from their reactions and their own reporting was otherwise. It seemed likely that they had shared their world with no other, no separate warm-blooded animals. He went down to the service bay and checked the screen that showed the waiting room. All was quiet in there. It had not come back. He turned from that screen and made work for himself among the ramped vehicles and buzzing tools. He didn't touch the alien's car. When it reappeared, he told it he was having a few problems. Please be patient, he said. Come back later, or wait. He took no new customers. The afternoon turned to dusk. The waiting room emptied until it, or she, was there alone. The mechanic's wife and his children arrived home, on foot from the tram stop, the baby in her buggy. He heard the childish voices chattering and laughing at the street door and gritted his teeth as if interrupted in some highly concentrated and delicate task. But he was doing nothing, just sitting in the gloom among the silent tools. The alien was folded up on its seat. It looked like an animal dressed up, a talking animal of no known species from a child's cartoon. It stood and smiled, showing the tips of its teeth, the modified snarl that might or might not be a genuine shared gesture. The mechanic was embarrassed because there really was no way he could explain his behaviour. A human customer, stranger in a strange land, would by now have been either very angry or possibly a little scared. The alien seemed resigned. It did not expect humans to behave reasonably. It made the mechanic obscurely angry to think that he was not the first person to give it the runaround like this. He would have liked to explain, I just want to have you near me for a while, but that would have been a shameful confession. I want to do you a favor, he said. I didn't like to tell you before, thought you might get embarrassed. I'm fixing up quite a few things, and I'm only going to charge you for the scrub. Oh, it looked surprised, perhaps wary. It was impossible not to award them with human feelings, not to read human expressions in their strange faces. Thank you. The least I could do after you've come all this way. He laughed nervously. It didn't. They did not laugh. Would you like to come upstairs? Would you like something to eat? A cup of tea? My wife, my kids, would be very pleased to meet you. The invitation was completely insincere. The last thing he wanted was to see it in his home. He didn't want to share the alien with anyone. The alien gave him a wry look that seemed to know exactly what was going on. According to some readings of their behaviour, they were telepathic, intensely so between themselves, "'mildly with humans. "'No, thank you,' it looked at the ground. "'Will the car be ready tomorrow?' "'The street was dark. "'There was little lighting just here, "'away from the hotels and mouths "'and the floodlit, water-lapped monuments. "'The poor alien might be mentally counting up its cash, "'maybe wondering what the hell to do next. "'The mechanic felt guilty, but it wasn't his fault.' He didn't want to capture it. He didn't want to turn it out, either. He'd have liked it to stay here, to keep its real live presence. It could sleep on the seats. He would bring down some food. They liked some human foodstuffs. Ice cream, white bread, hamburgers, nothing too natural. Yes, of course. Come back tomorrow. I open at nine. He told his wife that he had to work overtime. This never happened, but she accepted the idea without comment. The routine of their life together was so calm it could swallow the occasional obvious lie without a ripple. He sat in the machine shop alone and looked around him. Cars. It was strange how many static urban Europeans still felt the need to own them, even with the fuel rationing and all the rest of the environment protection laws. The mechanic wasn't complaining, it was a steady job, and often even enjoyable. These are my people, he thought, trying on the alien worldview. My people, the sheep of my flock. He had a grandmother who was a churchgoer. But there came the idea of animals again, the separation of one kind of life from another. That was not what happened between an alien and an alien machine. He went up to the car, clamped on its ramp in an undignified posture, a helpless patient. "'Hello?' he said tentatively. The car made no response, but the atmosphere in the shop changed. By speaking to it aloud, he had shifted something, his own perception. He'd embarrassed himself, in fact. He could just catch the tale of a more interesting emotion.' He was a child creeping past the witch's door, deliciously afraid. But nothing he could do or say would make the imagined real, make him see the robot eyes wink, the jaws of metal grin or open in speech. Nothing but madness would change things that far. He began to work, or rather he set the robotics to work, He had no choice now. He would have to do what he had promised and square the accounts somehow. Nothing that happened in his garage went unrecorded. The mechanic had never tried to hack his way round the firm's system. He'd never been the type to be tempted by the complications of crime. The free machines skated to and fro. Others slid along the overhead lines and reached down their serpent heads. The mechanic fidgeted. The little car, a 15-year-old Korean methanol mix burner with a red plastic body, liquid clutch and suspension, was a hard-wearing complex of equipment, good for at least another 10 years on the road. It needed a certain amount of attention, but it didn't need his hands-on attention at all. He stood and watched. Upstairs the toddler would be in bed, and the boy too, tucked up with one of the home tutoring wires that supplemented the education provided by his mother's employers. The mother would be relaxing into her evening, snug in a nest of hardware. Empathically, subliminally, the mechanic was aware of the comings and goings, the familiar routine. He discovered why the alien filled him with such helpless, inarticulate delight. The machines promised, but they could not perform. They remained things, and people remained lonely. The mechanic has visited his country's national forests, the great tracts of land that must remain undisturbed, however small his sitting room became. He accepted the necessity of their existence, but the only emotion he could possibly feel was resentment. He had no friendship with the wilderness, Animals could be pets, but they were not part of you, not the same. The aliens had the solution to human isolation. A talking world, a world with eyes, the companionship that God dreams of. The aliens' visitation had stirred in him a godlike discontent. He could not make it stay, but perhaps he could learn from it, share its enriched experience. He saw the bay as a microcosm of human technology and civilization, full of creatures made in the mechanic's own image, his finger and thumb, his teeth, his rolling, folding joints, his sliding muscle, his mind even, in its flickering chemical cloud permeating the hardware of his brain. Excited by this insight, he jumped up and hurried to the bay's keypad. He pulled the robotics out, the shining jointed arms sliding back and folding themselves away into the walls. He took out a box of hand tools. He would pay the alien's car the greatest compliment in his power. He would give it the benefit of his craftsmanship, the kind of natural, organic servicing for which the rich paid ridiculous sums. For a while he worked like Adam in Eden, joyfully naming the subcreation with his hands and mind. He worked, he slowed. He sat on the cold, dark-stained floor with a socket spanner in one hand and a piece of rag waste in the other. They built things with bacteria, as the mechanic understood it. Bacteria which were themselves traceable to the alien's own intestinal flora, infecting everything, every tool and piece of furniture, even the massive shell of their ship world. He suddenly felt disgusted. Scientists had established that the alien bacteria were harmless. That was the story, but it might be wrong. It might be a big lie maintained to prevent panic in the streets. He wished he hadn't touched the car. The alien had been using it for months. It must be coated all over with invisible crawling slime. What was it like to be part of a living world? He stared at the spanner in his hand until the rod of metal lost its shine. Skin crept over it. The adjustable socket became a cup of muscle, pursed like an anus, wet lips drawn back by a twist on the tumescent rod. The mechanic was nauseated, but he could not put the tool down. He could not go away from it. This oozed drop of self attached to his hand would not be parted from him if he dropped it. Tiny strings, strands of living slime, would cling and join them still. The air he breathed was full of self, of human substance. He stood up. He backed off. A robot casing yielded like flesh. The mechanic yelped and sprang away. His hand, with the rod-flesh spanner growing out of it, hit the keypad and all the tools began to leap into action. He stood in his own surging, hurrying, pulsating gut for an instant saved by the notional space of an anatomical drawing. And then the walls closed in. There was no light, only a reddened darkness. The mechanic wailed. He fought a horrible need to vomit. He scrabbled desperately at the keys. When everything was quiet again, he sat for a while. It might have been minutes, it felt like a long time. Eventually, he stopped wanting to be sick and managed to put down the spanner. He sat with his head hunched in his arms, became aware of this abject foetal crouch and came out of it slowly. He took a deep breath. The garage was the same as it had always been, dead and safe. He realised that he had been highly privileged. Somehow, just briefly, he had succeeded in entering the alien mind, seen the world through alien eyes. How could you expect such an experience to be pleasant? Now that it was over, he could accept that, and he was truly grateful. At last he heaved a sigh and set about putting the bay to work again. He couldn't bring himself to touch the red car with hand tools now. Besides, he was too shaky. But he would deliver the alien's vehicle in the morning as promised, as near to perfectly reborn as was humanly possible. "'He owed it that much. "'He had tried to take something from the alien by a kind of force, "'and he'd got what he wanted. "'It wasn't the alien's fault that he'd bitten off more than he could chew "'and gagged on the mouthful. "'Gritting his teeth against the ghostly feel of flesh in the machines, "'he set up the necessary routines. "'In a short time it was all done, but it was very late.' His wife would have to ask questions now, and he'd have to tell her something of what had happened. He stood looking at the plastic shell and the clever, deviously economical innards under the open bonnet. The machines, they said, couldn't live with the ecosphere. In the end, the human race would have to abandon one or the other, motor cars or the environment, but in the end was still being held at bay. In the meantime, this was a good, well-made little compromise with damnation. He felt lonely and sad. He had seen another world walk into his life, reached out to grasp the wonder, and found something worse than empty air. He'd wanted the alien to give him dreamland, somewhere over the rainbow. He'd found, instead, an inimical Eden, "'a treasure that he could no more enjoy than he could crawl back into the womb. "'The mechanic sighed again and gently closed the bonnet. "'The red car settled itself a little. "'Thank you,' it said. "'In the morning at nine o'clock the alien was there. "'The car was ready, gleaming on the forecourt.' The alien put down its bag, which it carried not on its back or at arm's length, but tucked under one armpit in that very peculiar lopsided way of theirs. He thought it looked tired and anxious. It barely glanced at the car. Perhaps, like a human, it didn't even want to know how badly it had been cheated. "'What's the damage?' it asked. The mechanic was hurt. He'd have liked to go over the whole worksheet with it, to extract the sweet honey of its approval, or at least to extend this dwindling transaction just a little further. He had to remind himself that the alien owed him nothing. To itself, its feelings were not romantic or bizarre in the least. The world it lived in was commonplace. The mechanic's experience was his own concern, had been an internal matter from the start the alien was not responsible for kinks of human psychology, nor for imaginary paranormal incidents. "'Look,' he said, "'I've got a proposition for you. "'My eldest, my son, he's just passed his driving test. "'He won't be allowed out on his own for a while, of course. "'But I've been thinking about getting him a little runabout. "'I don't keep a car myself, you see. "'I've never felt the need. "'But kids, they like the freedom.' I'd like to buy your car. In the cold light of day, he couldn't bear to tell it the truth. He knew the car would never speak to him again. But he had been touched by the world of the other and he simply had to bring away something, some kind of proof. The alien looked even more depressed. The mechanic realised suddenly that he didn't have to worry about the money. He would tell the firm everything. They were human at head office and as fascinated as he. The car would stay on the forecourt. He would call in and get it featured on the local news, maybe even national news. It would be extremely good for business. For the aliens benefit, however, he would stick to the story about his son. They really shouldn't be encouraged to believe that human beings thought they were magic. List price, he added hurriedly, and a little more, because anyone would pay a little more, a car that's been driven by one of our famous visitors. What do you say? So the alien walked away with its credit card handsomely e-charged. It turned at the corner of the street, by the yard where the banana fronds hung over the gate, and bared its pointed teeth in that seeming smile. The farewell could have been for the red car on the forecourt as much as for the human beside it, but it made the man feel better anyway.
0: And that was our story. Hope you enjoyed. Of course aliens will find us fascinating, right? How could they not? I bet the first question aliens will ask our world leaders is why that peanut is wearing a top hat and monocle. Hope you enjoyed all the stories we brought you in March for Women and Aliens Appreciation Month. Remember that the Drabblecast relies solely on the generous donations of listeners such as yourself to keep this show going, so if you like what we do here, be sure to throw us a donation via the support links on our website, Drabblecast.org. We really appreciate it. All right, it's time. Time to announce the winners of the 2012 Drabblecast People's Choice Awards, as nominated and voted upon by you, the listeners, on Facebook and our discussion forums. The winner of Best Cover Art for 2012 is... The cover for Episode 265, Pop Quiz, by David Flett. The winner for Best Drabble 2012 My Wife the Star by Phineas QB, in episode 263. And the winner for Best Story in 2012, and the 2012 Travelcast Sacred Chalice of Glory, wow, for the second year in a row, UG Foster with Little Grace in the House of Death, episode 266. That's cool. Definitely a first to have someone win two years in a row. I also think it's very cool that the winning story this year was a Drabblecast original that we commissioned, also a first. Congrats, Yuji! Folks around here in Drabbleland apparently can't get enough of you. And thanks to everyone out there who voted. We love getting your feedback and then honoring deserving authors and artists with it. Looking forward to next year's. Alright, moving on to our 100-character story winner this week, also for the second time in a row, Horst Ragnarok, with this one here. Sir Hugh secured his chastity armor. He learned the hard way that one takes no chances when fighting the dire armadildo. Puns galore. Think you can write a 100-character story? That's a story written in 100 characters, not counting spaces. Give it a try. Post in our discussion forums. You might be on the show next week. Follow us on Twitter, at the Travelcast. Well, Weirdos, that's our show. Remember, the Travelcast is brought to you with a Creative Commons Attribution Non Commercial No Derivatives License, which means don't change or sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. Special thanks to our kick ass episode artist this week, Liz Pennies. Our program was brought to you this week by Nikki Drayden, Managing Editor, Nathan Lee, Submissions Editor, Bo Kyer, our Art Director, with additional help from Tom Baker, David Carvin, and David Steffen. We'll see you next week, weirdos. Until then, this is Norm Sherman reminding you, I want you to do the minimum legally necessary. No offense, Carr. Mm -hmm. The evening saunters to closing. The waitress turns chairs upside down. Piano player picks up his tip jar and drink. And the bartender shouts last round. An
1: hour ago this place was
0: loaded.